New Year's resolutions. How many of you have already made them? No? How many of you have already broke them? <laughs> only, only day two. A lot of New Year's resolutions, someone once said, only go about two weeks, and then you wind up forgetting them. Well, I want to talk today about the worship of God, and we're going to look at the letter of Micah. Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. Just a little background on Micah. Number one, his name means, who is like Yahweh? Indeed, who is like Yahweh? There's no other gods. There's no other gods. It's Yahweh, and Yahweh is so good, isn't he? Okay, I just want to make sure you guys are still alive. <laughs> uh, who is like Yahweh? He's a great God. Look around. Uh, Micah was from Morseth Gath. You say, well, where is Morseth Gath? Well, I'm getting ready to show you. Right here. It's in the land of the Philistines. Anybody remember the great man that came from Philistia? Who? Goliath. He was also cut down by a little boy, David, who taunted the nation of Israel and a king was afraid to deal with him, so he sent this little shepherd boy and took him down. Micah prophesied about the Assyrian destruction of a northern kingdom. That's nothing new. We've been looking at it. Remember the, if we go back here just for a second, the northern kingdom and you have the southern kingdom of Judah. But not only that, what's peculiar about Micah and his his prediction was that he also predicted the Babylonians would defeat the southern kingdom. Tell me it ain't so. The southern kingdom is now going to fall along with the northern kingdom. And again, this all falls within that grand scheme of God of bringing the nation of Israel together when Christ would come and save both the northern and southern kingdoms, reconciling them, but not only that, reconciling the world to himself. The good news extends beyond Israel. So a little bit about the context. I don't like just picking verses and then not saying anything about the context. The context of Micah <clears throat> calls the nation to give an account for how the Lord has wearied them. Uh, 6.3, oh my people, what have I done to you? This is God as he's getting ready to bring down the northern kingdom, bring down the southern kingdom. Oh my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, says God. Amazing. God's people. God, you've put so much on us. God, what are you doing? Boy, that sounds like us. How could you possibly be a loving God and allow this to happen? And it cost Israel. Micah also recalls how the Lord delivered them from the hands of the Egyptians immediately following this. <laughs> it, it, it's Micah 6 is what I would call is false worship of God. As we go through this, you're going to see this. So here you have the nation of Israel who's supposed to trust in Yodehaveh, or Yahweh, and yet they mock 
the very God that delivered them from Egypt. And the, the Egyptian bondage deliverance is not just in Micah. It is reminded over and over again in the Old Testament how God delivered them. They should have been stuck in bondage, but because who is like Yahweh was able to bring down Pharaoh and all ten of his major gods, was able to level them to where Pharaoh had but no choice to let them go. And of course, as Pharaoh pursued them, God closed the Red Sea behind them, on them, and destroyed Pharaoh. Who is like Yahweh indeed? So that's kind of the setting. Uh, Israel's not happy with God. He believes that they've, God has put all kinds of burdens on them. And uh, God says, okay, tell me how I've wearied you, please. I want to know. And so we look now, first of all, at we come before him. This is in verse sixes, or verse sixes. <laughs> verse six and seven, actually verse six a. What shall I come before the Lord? That's Yodehavev, the creator of the universe, and bow myself before him. They actually got three things right here, although in, within context, it's still fake worship. But listen to this. What shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before him? They called him the creator and the sustainer of life. That was one. They realized that God was highly exalted. That's two. And they realized that they worship means standing before God, even in the Old Testament. To come before is kidim, that's the Hebrew word, it's a payel verb, carries the idea of coming in front of somebody. So uh, they said, what shall we come before the Lord? In other words, they, they realize that there's this acknowledgement that they are coming before God, where he can see them, it is visible, it is real, and they realize that coming before him is a sense of worship. On Sunday mornings, we come before him in worship. Psalm 95.2 says this, Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Let me ask you a question this morning. When you came here today, what was your motive for coming? Yeah, it's a good question to ask. The motive should be that when we come here on Sunday mornings, and pretty much every day in our lives, there should be this dimension of realizing that when we're here, we're in the presence of God. I'm only a mouthpiece. God has called me out for that to preach his word. But we're in the presence of God here. No matter how many are here. We are in the presence of God. And God is here this morning. He is in this place spiritually. And so we are in the presence of God as well. And when we come into this place, we're to sing praises and joy to him. Now, this word, uh, I like this word, bow. Kafaf. It's a Nafal verb and carries the idea of bending down in worship. And anytime in Hebrew language, when there is a bending down, it is a sign of submission. So with their mouth, they say, what shall we come before the Lord and bow before him on high? 
they were saying it, but their heart was far from God. And you'll see this as we unfold. You go, man, how did they get away with that? But they, they didn't. They didn't get away with it. So they're, they're bowing down, saying, okay, Lord, we're submissive, but we're really not. Why do we take that position? Why? Submission means that when we read scripture or we're in church and something that the pastor says hits us, we must submit to that. Not because I said it, but because God's saying it through me. And I honestly believe that. I've always wrestled with at what point does the sermon become a divine experience? I think it becomes a divine experience when God speaks to your heart. So when God speaks to your heart, you have two options, maybe three. You can either do what God tells you to do, or you can remain neutral, or you can say, I'm not going to do it. The nation of Israel had leveled so many charges, northern and southern kingdoms. Assyrians and Babylonians, God says, okay, go get them. Because they're not worshiping me. That's the issue. That's the central issue here at the scripture we're looking at. On high is Marum, which means the heights of heaven. It refers to the dwelling place of God. Every time I, well, when I was going through this sermon, and I was thinking about God being high and exalted, Isaiah 33, 5 and 6 came to mind. The Lord is exalted for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. Isaiah was very astute, very articulate when he talked about the sins of the leaders. They lacked justice, they lacked righteous, righteousness, and they lacked faith. And so when he writes us, the Lord is exalted for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. And he will be the stability of your times. Listen, when we come before God, we realize he's the only stabilizing force in our lives. And these people in Micah's day didn't get it. Abundance of salvation. That's the wonderful thing about God. He gives salvation abundantly. Nobody's excluded that wants it. Wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure, and they have rebelled against God here. God was very patient. And by the way, God is really patient, isn't he? Isn't God patient? I mean, Lord, come. This is a mess that we're living in. And yet, we are called to worship him, not just on Sunday between 10 and 11, but every day of the week. Amazing. God is still on his throne, and he's watching the world events. Now, there's four possible solutions. And that's the best way I could say it here the solutions of how we come before him. And this is where the nation of Israel goes like this. Because when you study the original language, you see that there's a 
well, let's just get to it. So, in verse 6b and 7, we are obviously talking here about worship, about the temple. And when we talk about the temple, we're talking about the gate that you walked through. There was a brazen altar there. You made a sacrifice. Then there was the bronze laver, and the priest would wash his hands, and he would go into the holy place. There were two places. One was called the holy place, which in the holy place you had the table of showbread, which there were always 12 fresh loaves. And for that, that was for the 12 tribes of Israel. To the left, you had a lampstand. You'll notice here, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, the perfect number of God, and each one of those candles were lit. That means that God gives light to the world, and he is holy. And then there was the altar of incense, where it would be kept 24 hours a day, seven days a week. This aroma would go up into the nostrils of God. They never let that go out. They had fresh loaves every day. Those candles, one was, they were always lit. That was the holy place. And then they walked into the holies of holies. The holy of holies, the Ark of the Covenant, the seat of mercy. And once a year, the priest would put blood on that altar as an atonement for the sins of the world, of the nation. When you look at the Gospel of John, you see him depicting Christ as each one of the elements of this temple. For example, the brazen altar was the cross of Christ. You go back and read John's gospel, you see it unfolding. They would next go to the bronze laver where his blood will cleanse us from all sin. As you walk into the holy place, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He that believes in me will never be in darkness. The table of showbread, I am the bread of life. He that believes in me will never hunger again. And then you have the altar of incense where he lives to make intercession for us. The prayers in the Old Testament would go up to God as intercession for the people. And Jesus is at the right hand of the Father ever living to make intercession for us. Just because we look at the Old Testament, we go, wow, that was a long time ago, and that doesn't mean anything. Yes, it does, because the same God that is in the New Testament is the same God that is in the Old Testament. And the same principles come over just in different internal ways. And then, of course, you get to the holies of holies, and that's where you have the mercy seat, the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. The nation of Israel mocked this. They were no better than the Assyrians. They were no better than the Babylonians at this point. And it doesn't mean that this is an, an unimportant event. John Martin, he writes this, by these questions, the prophet was not downplaying the importance of the sacrificial system. The Lord had set up the Levitical system to provide, among other things, atonement for the people's sin yes he knew however that the sacrifices were meant to be an outward expression of an inward trust and dependence on God for his grace and mercy so what worship 
solutions that the prophet realized was happening in the nation of Israel. And I want you to see here, there seems to be this a little, a little more, a little more, and a little more. You could do it this way. Starts out small and gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Look at the sacrifices. The worship solutions. Here they are. Number one, shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Think joking. What shall I come before you, God? What do you want from me? That's the language. I know you read it and you go, wow, this, but it's, it's, it's mocking. Burnt offerings were voluntary to reestablish a relationship with God. So, if you had a guy that came yesterday and offered a burnt offering to restore that relationship, and he came that afternoon and to burnt offering, that means this guy was not living for God. So I know it looks, it looks clean. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings or with calves a year old? Sounds like they're asking a question, but really they're mocking God. A yearling calf was an expensive sacrifice. I like steak. What's the choicest cut of steak? Probably filet mignon. I like that name. Filet mignon. It's an expensive cut of, if you get a really good one, it can be very, very expensive. You see here, that they start with just simple burnt offerings and now they are putting a little more price tag on it. By the way, the calf would remain with the mother for seven days and then would be offered to God. It was a legitimate sacrifice. The problem is they weren't doing it right. Number three, listen to the words and think about your life. Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams or ten thousand rivers of oil? What do you want, God? What do you want? And this, and this as I did the study on these words, this suggests that God is greedy. So you read this, you go, wow, the nation of Israel really wants to know how to worship God. No, they're not. Verse 3 says, how have I wearied you, says the Lord. And the reason that this is so ludicrous is it's the nation of Israel. They knew the sacrificial system. They knew all of that. And yet they have the audacity. You want me to give you? Rams and oil and all kinds of stuff. You're a greedy God. Oh, look out. <laughs> look out. Something bad is coming. Oh, this is this this next one is like a trump card. 
I think this is actually what brought down both. I want you to think about how do you worship God every day? Because the issue here is about the heart. Always has been, always will be. I love you, Lord. Now I'm going to go live my life and mistreat people. I'm going to be hateful. That's false worship. To say that you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you hate your neighbor, that's false. Don't even say it. In this new year, we should be getting back to the idea of worship. This last one is unbelievable, and it's unmistakable. It was the tenth plague on the nation of Israel. Not the nation of Israel, but you know what I meant, the, on Pharaoh. This was the tenth plague. Listen to the mockatory tone here. Okay, God, if you don't want 10,000 rams and ten, or 1,000 rams and 10,000 rivers of oil, which was very expensive, that was an exaggeration. They didn't have that much money. They are making fun of God. Shall I give the Lord my firstborn for my transgression? I can just see when God said, I want you to put blood over the doorpost. And if you don't, I'm going to take your firstborn. Israel deserved what it got. These, these people are not. These people do not. I repeat, do not love Yahweh. They don't. Because now they're really mocking God. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you remember when you took our firstborn? Because we, maybe some of us, maybe my, my great, 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 great grandfather didn't put blood over the doorpost. You remember God when you took him? Should I offer that again? You know, I've heard people mock sermons. Mock church. And I'm like, mm, okay. Because there's coming a day when God's not going to put up with it. We should never, ever come to a place in our lives where we mock God. Mocking is a sign of spiritual immaturity and it is dangerous as well. The Bible says that God will not be mocked. So when we think about our worship, if we were to reverse, by the way, that should be number four there. We could change these. God, I want to offer you my best. God, I want to offer you the best of my finances. I want to offer you the best of my life. I want to offer my children to you. As, as a sign of my sincere dedication to you. You could just put these in a different setting inwardly and you would have a perfect picture of worship. And then, once we come before him in worship, we should live to please him. And here's that word justice. 
So Micah now is responding on behalf of God. Because Micah knew. And when Micah put those in forms of question, there's no doubt in my mind that he heard this kind of mockatory tone, mocking tone of God, and writes it out. You know, I would not have liked to have been my... That's not the kind of people you want to worship with. That's the kind of people you want to avoid. But we're to please him. And how do we please God? Look at what Micah writes. He has told you, old man, what is good. Old man, that's a designation for the nation of Israel, both north and south. Tov is the word for good, which means pertaining of good value. It is the opposite of evil. God's already told him what's good. And yet they are doing what's evil in their heart. I don't get it. How could you, how could you see the hand of God all of those years, generation after generation after generation, and then you get to a generation that says, I don't get it. Micah was a brave guy. What does the Lord require? Day rush. That means to seek after something. And by the way, this is what God is seeking. They were doing the burnt offerings. They were offering the calves. They were doing all of this stuff. But it really wasn't worship. Micah says, let me tell you what God really wants. It's not about all that show. It's not about how I look. It's not about that. What does God require of you? And this is, this is God seeking, and I still think God seeks us today. Justice. I love this word. Mishpat. I love that. Mishpat. And that means to decide a legal case. God wants justice. James Smith writes in his commentary, perhaps justice heads Micah's list because social injustice was a great sin which scarred the society of his day. It was bad. Practicing justice means to uphold what is right according to the will of Yahweh. And I would maintain every one of you in this room this morning and those watching, you know the right thing to do. Don't you? You know how to live your life to please God. You do. And if you can't remember how, just go love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is liken unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Because that encapsulates, en encapsulates the whole Old Testament Torah. You can break it down in those two. So when you go out here, go out loving God with everything that you have. And then as you encounter lost people, love them the way that you love yourself. That'll be worship. That'll be worship. Secondly, 
Loving kindness. It follows right up on, on justice. Ahava. And that's the word for love, and it means affection for another based on a relationship. Listen. Let me encourage you and challenge you this new year to get to know somebody in this church that you don't know. Get to, get to know them, to love them, to get into a relationship with them. Also, I want to encourage you to get in a relationship. It can be kind of dangerous, but get into a friendship with an unbeliever so that they can see Christ. I'm not saying get involved in their lives and participate in their sin. I'm saying get involved in the life of an unbeliever and show them what a true Christian looks like. Because we're all bad at it, myself included. I actually have a leg up because I'm a pastor and I'm around a lot of lost people. But that fact aside, we get in our cliques and we stay there. Somebody said the other day, I can't remember when, uh, about the fellowship dinners. And we go back there and we sit when we have the fellowship dinners and it's the same group sitting with the same group. Mix it up a bit. Get to know somebody and get into a relationship with them. Love them the way Christ loved you. Then teach them what it means to love God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. I think of, when I think we're in, we're community. We are community. We should be loving one another, caring for one another, ministering to one another, praying for one another. By the way, pray for Joy. She is home. But we need her back. We need her back here and pray. Um, by the way, uh, if you'd like to send over a meal to her, just get with Ruth. These are ways that we can minister to love kindness. Thursday, this place was packed, and I do mean packed, and there were people in the foyer. I did a funeral here. It was so good to see that many people here. And I told them in that sermon that we've become an angry culture, and that we need to get back to loving people. And Kyle who I was preaching the funeral for, the celebration of life, said he never met a stranger. That should be us. Loving kindness should... We shouldn't be mean with people and talk bad about them. Who in the world would come to church like that? If you're out there bad-mouthing the church, I wouldn't come. We need to get back to loving people and caring for them and taking care of them. And he says here to love kindness. Kindness, unfailing kindness, devotion. It is a love, and I'm just reading right from the, from the Hebrew. Unfailing kindness, devotion, i.e. a love affection that is steadfast based on a relationship. You can't get to know unbelievers 
staying around believers all the time. And we have the solution, right? We have Christ. He's our Savior. And then, this is what God told them to do and what they didn't do. What they did do was make fun of God and his worship system. Well, you know, Lord, if I do some burnt offerings, will that make you happy? Uh, if I give you a, a fatted calf, will that make you happy? And I, I've, seen, I've even seen Christians slip into this too. God doesn't care about me. He doesn't love me. Why are you allowing this? Here it is. God says, I've already told you what to do, Micah. Micah, tell the people, I've already told them, to love what is good, to love kindness, and lastly, to walk humbly. With, side by side, to walk humbly with God. And this word walk, the, the words walk humbly, to behave in a manner with this, which is opposite of arrogance. These people were arrogant. What do you want? You want my firstborn too? It's arrogance. God says, no, 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 no. I really want your heart. I want you to live for me. And part of living for me is to walk humbly. And if you get this posture right, then probably your worship will follow. If this is right, which I think, I think God's doing this to him, humbleness is one of the signs of the presence of God in a life. Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. So what do we need to take from this today? Number one, I think we need to think about our lives. I think we need to think about our lives, particularly as, as we think about this new year. How am I doing? How am I doing? I'm not talking about a pie-in-the-sky view of how we live. I mean to really get down and go, wait a minute. How am I living my daily life? A real assessment. A real assessment. of how I am living my life before God. How do I worship? I'll just be honest with you, as honest as I can possibly be. If you're just coming to punch a time card, I'd stay home. But if you're coming because you love God, you love him with all of your heart, and you want to know what he has to say to you, either through songs or somebody's testimony or through the sermon, if you really want to love God and know him, then please come and worship. I'll take 10 people who are truly worshiping God over 1,000 who are not. So when we come here, we come here with the sole idea of saying, God, speak to me. Lord, I love you. I want to love others. Help me do that. 
rather than singing a few songs, going to the house, and Monday morning it doesn't even look like church affected you. 